Welcome to the, the second John Locke lecture to be given by Bob Stolmaker. The series is our knowledge of the internal world, as you know, and as I'm sure you also know, uh, today Bob's going to be talking about epistemic possibilities and the knowledge of them. My general topic is the character of our knowledge of our own phenomenal experience and the content of our thought. I talked last time about uh, an external approach to the issue. That is, the idea was to try to see the project as the task of characterizing from the outside the kind of thing that has an internal perspective, the kind of thing that we are, the kind of thing that has experience and the capacity to think about it, uh, it among other things. So I'm going to be concerned throughout these uh, talks with the interplay of perspectives, in particular the, primarily the perspective of the theorist and the subject, but also the perspectives of an interlocutor, uh, an interpreter, and an attributor of uh, thought. So today I'm going to start with the story of Mary, which concerns one kind of difference between subjective and objective perspectives. So everyone knows about Mary. She's a brilliant scientist who has been confined since birth to a black and white room. She knows from reading the black and white books that line the shelves of her room all there is to know about the physics of color and the neurophysiology of color vision. But she has never had the opportunity to see colors. Even though she knows all the relevant physical and biological science, there's still something she does not know, something she will learn only when she first emerges from her room and sees colored things. She doesn't know what it's like to see colors. Now, this story told by Frank Jackson provided the context for an argument that he gave, which he called the knowledge argument. And it goes roughly like this. The story seems to imply that a person might know all the relevant physical facts while remaining ignorant of certain further facts, facts about the qualitative character of visual experience. So there must be facts to be known that are not physical facts. But if there are facts that go beyond the physical facts, then materialism or physicalism, the thesis that all facts are physical facts, is false. Now, it's a deceptively simple argument that raises a number of different issues. The conclusion is that a certain metaphysical thesis is false, and most of the responses to the argument have been attempts to rebut this conclusion by reconciling the thought experiment in one way or another with materialism. I'm going to review some of those responses, but my main uh, concern will be with issues that are independent of materialism but issues that the story and the argument about it force us to confront. So I want to consider what the story and uh, some variations on it might show about our epistemic relation to our experience and about the relation between our experience and our knowledge more generally. And since the argument turns on the claim that there's some new information that Mary acquires when she leaves her room, Evaluating the argument will require getting clear about what kind of thing items of information and contents of belief might be. 
Now, it's, it's been suggested that the knowledge argument is a non-starter since it, uh, quote, quoting, this is quoting Alex Byrne, my colleague, who is citing Terence Horgan saying something like this, uh, the, the knowledge argument, quote, illegitimately draws a metaphysical conclusion that physicalism is false from an epistemic premise that physically omniscient Mary would not know everything. But there's nothing wrong in general with deriving metaphysical conclusions from epistemological premises, so long as the argument is valid. <laughs> and there's no mystery about how epistemological premises can have metaphysical consequences, since knowledge implies truth. Prima facie, at least, it's reasonable to take facts to be the things that are known. On this assumption, one can validly reason from an epistemological premise that Mary knows all the facts of kind K, but does not know the fact that P, to the metaphysical conclusion that the fact that P is not a fact of kind K. And that's a sort of very um, abstract sketch in a very simple version of the knowledge, form of the knowledge argument. Um, now, uh, another way one might try to make the connection between the epistemological premise and the metaphysical conclusion is to follow uh, David Lewis um, and make uh, the distinction in terms of uh, possibilities or possible worlds. And I'm uh, going to differ from David Lewis uh, in uh, many uh, at many points in these. And I'm going to talk a lot about some of his different arguments, uh, but and in particular, I have a very different idea of what a possible world is. But I'm going to follow him in trying to understand information in terms of possibilities. So, what is known, according to Lewis? is an item of information. And information is to be explained in terms of the exclusion of possibilities. If there is a piece of information that Mary is ignorant of, then there are possibilities that she is not in a position to exclude. If she's omniscient about the relevant physical facts, then all of the possibilities compatible with her information, all that she cannot exclude, uh, all the possibilities that she cannot exclude will be physically indiscernible from each other. So any possibility she is not in a position to exclude must differ, any possibilities that she's not in a position to exclude must differ from each other in some non-physical way. But what materialism claims is that all distinctions between possibilities, uh, at least between possible worlds that share the same fundamental properties as the actual situation, all of them supervene on physical distinctions. So, Lewis argues, if we accept that Mary's ignorance is a lack of information, then we must accept what he calls the hypothesis of phenomenal information. And that's uh, uh, stated on the handout, and I'm going to talk about it some more. Um, in a couple of weeks, but um, just sort of get the sort of general um, uh, view uh, that Lewis sees uh, one is committed to if one 
buys the knowledge argument. So two possibilities might be exactly alike physically, yet differ phenomenally. When we get physical information, we narrow down the physical possibilities, and perhaps we narrow them down all the way to one, but we leave open a range of phenomenal possibilities. So you imagine a picture of logical space uh, uh, partitioned into um, fine-grained cells, uh, each cell of the partitioned space uh, representing um, all the physical information. Um, uh, according to one conception of the way the world might be. And if one is a materialist, then one says that uh, if you narrow things down to a partition cell of the physical partition, the partition of all physical information, then you have narrowed it all the way down to one. If there are distinct possible worlds within one partition cell, which differ in some other respect, perhaps phenomenally, then they are uh, then materialism is false. So that's sort of the picture that uh, Lewis uh, is operating with. Now, there are a number of, of strategies for resisting Jackson's argument and avoiding the anti-materialist conclusion uh, spelled out explicitly as the hypothesis of phenomenal information by Lewis. All of these uh, ways of, or strategies for resisting um, the conclusion um, are ways of rejecting in one way or another the idea that Mary lacks a kind of information that distinguishes between possible ways the world might be in itself. So I'm going to look at, just in sort of a very general way today, at three of these uh, strategies. And um, again, these are sort of spelled out in the middle of the first page of the uh, hand I'll just summarize. So first, what has been called the Fregian uh, strategy holds that we need a notion of information or content that's more fine-grained than one grounded in a distinction between possibilities. Uh, a notion of um, some kind of uh, sense of a sentence or thought which is more fine-grained um, than um, so that distinct thoughts might be necessarily equivalent, make the same distinctions between possibilities. So that's the first sort of general strategy. Second uh, strategy is what Lewis called and defended, uh, what Lewis called the ability hypothesis that he, that he defended. And this uh, um, strategy rejects the idea that it is information in any sense that Mary lacks. What she lacks is certain abilities. The third uh, strategy uh, is to grant that Mary lacks a kind of information, but to deny that she lacks information about the world as it is in itself. What she lacks is a kind of indexical or self-locating information, information about her place in the world rather than about what the world is like in itself. So I'm going to argue that... Um, well, I should say, in general, the, the different sort of ways of developing this third strategy, but the idea is that in some way there's an analogy between knowledge of uh, the special kind of knowledge of who one is or what time it is, things like that, and the special kind of knowledge um, that one has when one has phenomenal knowledge. Um, 
I'm going to argue that none of these responses, at least on first pass, succeed in resolving the puzzle, though I'm going to suggest that the last strategy points in the right direction. Uh, But I think the analogy between Mary's predicament and the predicament of a person who lacks certain essentially indexical information is a fruitful one, uh, but seeing how it works will require rethinking the notion of indexical or self-locating attitudes. Okay, so first, um, look, look a little bit at the Fregian uh, strategy. So what I'm calling uh, the Fregian strategy for responding to the knowledge argument rejects the premise that there is a fact that physically omniscient Mary fails to know. What she learns only after emerging from her room is not a new fact, but an old fact known in a new way. Mary knew all about colors under one kind of mode of presentation, but not under the mode of presentation that presents colors visually. Now, this kind of response stands in need of a theory of senses or modes of presentation and of what kinds of things the objects of knowledge and the contents of belief are, uh, an account that will vindicate the idea that there are distinctions between objects of knowledge and between contents of thought that are more fine-grained than distinctions between the possibilities. Now, I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, Frege himself was not very uh, um, explicit Uh, very often about the identity conditions for thoughts. Uh, And he sometimes, or at least at one point, came close to suggesting that logically equivalent sentences, or at least logically equivalent sentences that uh, that are not themselves logical truths. So if you have contingent sentences that are logically equivalent, then they express identical thoughts. There's a letter to Husserl where he pretty explicitly says that. And there are other places where it's suggested that that thoughts, um, um, that that sentences with quite different structures might nevertheless express the same thought. What's presented, uh, one of the problems of trying to understand or fit the Fregian idea of a mode of presentation to the Um, to the idea of a thought is that what's presented uh, by a a sense of any kind is something extremely coarse-grained. So what's presented by a sentence, uh, so a thought is a way, a mode of presenting a truth value, not a a fact or anything like that. So it doesn't sort of follow straight away from the fact that senses are more fine-grained than the things that they present and reference, that therefore sentences are, or thoughts are more fine-grained than, uh, than uh, coarse-grained propositions. But the neo or Phrygian strategy has tended to take thoughts to be something uh, uh, quite uh, fine-grained. But exactly what they are is, is less uh, often not very clear. So one worry about a mode of presentation Uh, this idea of a mode of presentation, is that it threatens to blur the line between the content of a representation and the relation between the representation and its content. Uh, 
or between the content and the accidental features of the vehicle that carries the content. So the idea of a way of presenting something looks more like a relation between something doing the presenting and something being presented. Um, even if thoughts or propositions cannot be identified with their truth conditions, that is, with the way they distinguish between possibilities, it should be uncontroversial that thoughts, whatever they are, have truth conditions um, and that the truth conditions they have are essential to them. So that any Fregian thought determines a unique coarse-grained proposition, where by a coarse-grained proposition, I mean a proposition that's individuated by its truth conditions. Logically equivalent, necessarily equivalent propositions are identical in this sense. Um, uh, so it's individuated by its truth conditions or by the set of possible worlds in which it's true, which is a representation of truth conditions. Suppose we have distinct, whatever Phrygian thoughts are, suppose we have distinct Phrygian thoughts that distinguish between the possibilities in the same way. That is, they're not necessarily equivalent. The challenge is to say exactly how they are different as contents and what role the difference plays in the explanation of the difference between a representational state with the one thought as its content and a representational state of the same kind but with the other thought as its content. The explanation must preserve the idea that the thought is the content of the representation, where it's essential to the idea of content that it be detachable from the speaker or thinker, from the act of speaking or thinking, and from the form in which the content is represented in speech or thought. So this feature of content, this way in which it's abstracted from uh, a representation, was required by the response to Bernard Williams' dilemma for the absolute conception of reality that I talked about at the end of the uh, last uh, uh, lecture. It was acknowledged there that in that discussion that any representation represents the world from a particular perspective in the world and has the content that it has only in virtue of its relation to the things in the world that are being represented. The claim was that this is not a problem for a conception of the world as it is in itself, so long as we can separate conceptually the content of the representation from the parochial features of the situation that account for its having the content that it has. So this is sort of just a general kind of reason for suspicion uh, and uh, of, of the sort of Phrygian um, strategy and, and for a need for more uh, clarification about exactly what, uh, what Phrygian thoughts are. But whatever they are, it's not clear in any case that appeal to them can avoid the conclusion that the kind of ignorance that Mary has involves an inability to rule out certain possibilities. For suppose there are two Phrygian thoughts, whatever they are, that even a logically omniscient thinker might grasp without realizing that they have the same truth conditions. Suppose, that is, that no amount of a priori reasoning could lead a thinker from one to the other. 
In such a case, it seems that one might form a clear and coherent conception of a situation in which one of the thoughts is true and the other false. And this seems to imply that such a situation would be at least a conceptual possibility, something, a possibility, something conceivable. Now, let me try to connect this with Mary's situation. With her vast scientific knowledge, Mary will have a concept of the type of functional physiological state that she would be in when having an experience of seeing something red. And I'm going to call that concept psi. Now, I need to say here that I'm going to talk for a bit about concepts. And I intend by this term, it's not the way Frege used the term, but the way many neo-Fregeans these days use the term, I think is something like a Fregean sense of a predicative expression, the mode of presentation of a property. Now, I'm going to, at a number of points later on, express considerable doubts about whether we know what we're talking about when we talk about concepts. And that perhaps there's some equivocations in talk of concepts, particular equivocation between something more like a word and something more like the meaning of a word. So if we don't know what we're talking about when we talk about concepts, then one shouldn't put any theoretical weight on such a notion. But at this point, in just trying to articulate a problem for the Fregean, I'm going to assume that the Fregean will understand what I'm supposing in this discussion, even if I don't. Okay, so we have this concept, we call it psi, which is the concept of a certain kind of physical state one is in, a type of physical state one is in, when one is having an experience of a certain kind. And of course, Mary knows all about that because of her vast knowledge. Now, second, call the phenomenal concept that she acquires only when she leaves her room and sees red, phi. A lot of talk, and one sort of development of the Fregean strategy has become an enormous amount of discussion is what is now called the phenomenal concept strategy. I see a version of a Fregean view. Okay, now in terms of these two concepts, let's distinguish these two Fregean thoughts. And that's A and B on the handout. A is the one expressed by Mary as having a psi-type experience, and B is the one expressed by Mary as having a phi-type experience. Now, it would seem that these are two thoughts that meet our condition. That is, no amount of a priori reasoning would suffice to infer either from the other, but the materialist is going to claim that they are necessarily equivalent. Of course, Mary, when still in her room, is not in a position to grasp the concept phi. And so, not in a position to entertain thought B. But that doesn't matter to the point. The fact remains that a person who was in a position to grasp both concepts phi and psi would still not be able to reason from A to B, or vice versa. Mary might come to know B, that she is having an experience 
picked out by this type of experience, picked out by this phenomenal concept. Um, uh, she might come to know this after leaving her room and still not be in a position to know whether A is true. And even after leaving her room and acquiring the concept phi, she could not make the hypothetical inference from A to B. Now, we could grant that A is in fact true. That we, we, we can grant that if A is in fact true, that is, if Mary is having a psi experience, that is one of these... She's in the state, which one is in when one is having an experience of seeing something red, then she will know that B, thought B, is true. That is, that she will know that she is having a phi experience. Um, we can uh, uh, grant this, but uh, she will not know it by inference from A. So, however, Fregian modes of presentation are individuated, it seems that the story about Mary supports the conclusion that there are at least conceptually possible situations that differ, even when those situations are physically uh, indiscernible. Now, for the knowledge argument to go through, we would need a further controversial inference, one that has received a great deal of discussion in the literature, an inference from conceptual possibility or conceivability to metaphysical possibility. Um, John Hawthorne, for example, and Tamar Gendler, uh, Zabo Gendler, have a, an anthology of papers, uh, conceivability and possibility, talking about this issue from, by many, many people, uh, and a lot of other stuff as well. Um, okay, so can we make an inference from the existence of a conceptual possibility or a conceivable situation to a metaphysical possibility? But if there is a distinction to be made here between um, conceivability and possibility, it needs explanation. We don't want to defend materialism by invoking some kind of brute metaphysical law that rules some possibilities, including those that are physically like the actual world but phenomenally different from it, rule them out of bounds as simply violating the metaphysical uh, uh, laws. So, um, but let's look more closely at, at what a situation that's conceptually but not metaphysically possible might be like, if there, if there could be such situations. A, conceptual, a conceptually possible situation in which the concept phi applies to something to which the concept psi fails to apply is deemed metaphysically impossible by the materialist because, according to the materialist thesis, two concepts, the two concepts determine the same property. So again, a concept is something like a mode of presentation of a property. So there can't be a situation in which one of the concepts applies while the other does not. But one might respond that even though the concepts in fact determine the same property, it's not metaphysically impossible that they should, those concepts, should determine different properties. If we really succeed in conceiving of a situation in which one concept applies while the other does not, then we are conceiving of a situation in which the property picked out by the one is different from the property picked out by the other. Now, the Phrygian might insist that it's essential to a concept that it pick out the property that it, in fact, picks out. And again, this is part of the question of what concepts are uh, uh, here. 
So if this was right, then a conceptually possible situation in which the, say, just an example of a non, less controversial kind, where the concept aluminum picks out a substance that's not an element, if we can conceive of a situation like that, then we're conceiving of a situation which is not itself metaphysically possible. But if we say this, we make this claim about concepts, we're now talking about the metaphysics of concepts and not the metaphysics of the kinds and properties that the concepts pick out. Now, I'm not sure what concepts are or exactly how the cognitive abilities that constitute the possession of concepts should be spelled out, but it seems to me puzzling if the following is possible, at least not that one might in the end want to say this, but one wants some story about how it's possible. That is, if one might, this is what's puzzling, is the possibility that one might be fully competent with each of two concepts and be able to form a clear and coherent conception of a situation in which one is exemplified and the other is not, even though there is no possible situation in which one is exemplified and the other is not. I would expect conceptual capacities to be explained in terms of the ability to form accurate conceptions of possible situations in which they are exemplified. Now, there are, of course, the notorious cases, which lie at the heart of most of this discussion, of necessary a posteriori truths, such as, to use my simple example, that aluminum is an element. And these are cases in which it appears that one can form a coherent conception of a situation in which the statement is false, even though there is no possible world in which it is false. But such illusions of possibility of the unproblematic kind can be explained as cases in which one is conceiving of a genuine metaphysical possibility, but misdescribing it as a case where the statement in question is false. The possibility is one in which a different substance plays the role that aluminum plays in the actual world. But it's not clear that the apparent divergence between Mary's theoretical concept and her later acquired phenomenal concept can be explained in this way. So the Fregian strategy does not promise to diffuse our puzzle, at least not without a lot of further development. Now, this discussion obviously, I mean, it alludes, takes us back to old issues and old discussions, first arising in discussion of Kripke's arguments against the identity theory in naming and necessity. And we're going to come back, I will come back to some of these issues in a somewhat different form later. But let's look at the other strategies. First, or second, the ability hypothesis. So David Lewis argued that we can avoid the anti-materialist conclusion of the knowledge argument and the hypothesis of phenomenal information only by adopting a more radical solution, since he granted, Lewis granted, that distinctions of informational content require distinctions between metaphysical possibilities. The radical solution, which he called the ability hypothesis, holds that what Mary acquires on leaving her room is not any kind of information at all, but a set of ideas about the world in which she lives. 
but only a certain ability or a certain cluster of abilities. For example, the ability to recognize colors and to imagine seeing them. Now, is the ability hypothesis plausible? Well, Lewis would, I'm sure, agree that knowledge of any kind is a kind of ability or capacity. It's just that certain abilities, namely cognitive abilities, or at least certain cognitive abilities, are aptly described in terms of the possession of information. If one sort of cashes out what it is to possess information, it's to have some abilities uh, of various uh, kinds. So um, uh, certain abilities, cognitive abilities, are aptly described in terms of uh, information, where information is understood in terms of alternative possibilities. Uh, The plausibility of the ability hypothesis hangs on whether the abilities in question that Mary lacks before leaving her room and acquires afterwards are abilities of this distinctive kind. Can Mary's ignorance be represented or must it be is it most aptly represented as the failure to exclude certain possibilities? If so, then the ability hypothesis won't um, solve the problem. Now, in defending the ability hypothesis, Lewis argued that there were no possibilities of the right kind to be found. Um, And this is a quotation on the top of the second page um, of the handout. When someone doesn't know what it's like to have an experience, where are the alternative open possibilities? I cannot present to myself in thought a range of alternative possibilities about what it might be like to taste Vegemite. That's because I cannot imagine either what it is like to taste Vegemite or any alternative way that it might be like, but in fact isn't. I can't even pose the question that phenomenal information is supposed to answer. Is it this way or that? It seems that the alternative possibilities must be unthinkable beforehand and afterwards too, except for the one that turns out to be actualized. Vegemite, if you don't know, is this um, Australian version of, I guess, Marmite is what one has here, but a vegetarian version of it, which David Lewis scrupulously avoided tasting through his life so that he would be able to have this example to use. Um, And when I went to Australia, I was given a sample of the stuff by my colleague, he says, for purposes of phenomenological investigation. So I did taste it, but to tell you the truth, I can't remember what it's like. (laughs) Now, it's a a relevant fact, I think, about the story that the subject cannot present the alternative possibilities to himself in thought or herself, in the case of Mary, in thought. But this is not a reason to think that the possibilities are not there. The role of alternative possibilities in the characterization of information is an external one. That is, the theorist is the one who distinguishes possibilities and uses them to describe the state of mind of a subject. Possible situations that cannot be distinguished by the subject may still be relevant for characterizing that subject's cognitive capacities and limitations. So I'll just give an example. Mary, remarkably, had never heard of Margaret Thatcher. 
All that intensive study of color science left her little time for learning about political history. So she doesn't know that Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of Great Britain for many years. We can see that possible worlds in which Thatcher was Prime Minister, possible worlds in which she was not, and possible worlds in which she was never born, are all among Mary's epistemic possibilities. Uh, But she cannot represent these possibilities to herself. She cannot distinguish them from each other. Now, is Mary's ignorance of what it's like to see colors or Lewis's ignorance of the taste of Vegemite like this? After the fact, that is, after she learns about Margaret Thatcher, Mary can represent to herself the possibilities that she previously could not distinguish between. For all I knew before, she says, Margaret Thatcher might never have existed. The situation is similar with her retrospective characterization after leaving the room of her prior ignorance of color experience. For all I knew before I left the room, she says, red might have looked like this, demonstrating in imagination the way red, uh, uh, the way green looks to her, rather than like that, demonstrating in imagination the way red looks to her. It does seem that the abilities that Mary lacks are cognitive abilities that one should expect to be representable in terms of distinctions between possibilities. While it may be right, as the ability hypothesis claims, that Mary does not necessarily acquire information merely by having color experience, it seems that she does acquire an ability to make distinctions. That is, is one of the abilities that she acquires, that Lewis is talking about, is the ability to make distinctions between possibilities that she could not distinguish before. And a proper account of these abilities requires an account of the distinctions between the possibilities. So I don't think that the ability hypothesis by itself will give us a way of avoiding a distinctive kind of phenomenal information. Okay, a third general category of, of responses, a number of, of the self-locating analogy, a number of philosophers, John Perry, David Papineau, Tim Crane, Bill Lichen, among others, have tried to use an analogy with self-locating knowledge to diffuse the knowledge argument. The analogy begins by noting a parallel between the central premise of the knowledge argument, that there is a distinctive kind of knowledge, phenomenal knowledge, that is irreducible to physical knowledge, and the thesis that there is a distinctive kind of knowledge, self-locating knowledge, that is irreducible to objective impersonality about what the world is like in itself. But in the case of self-locating knowledge, there does not seem to be a parallel conclusion to be drawn about a distinctive kind of metaphysical fact to ground self-locating knowledge. That is, it doesn't motivate us to sort of refine the space of possibilities uh, in order to account for that distinctive kind of information. Few are tempted to sort of make the move of objectifying the self uh, in this way. I should say few, um, but not everyone uh, resists the temptation um, to sort of build selfhood into a sort of metaphysical conception of the world as it is in itself, and the various different ways of doing that. I think there's an interesting, very interesting 
long paper by by uh, Kit Fine um, called I think Tense and Reality, which uh, at the end discusses um, a version of sort of first person presentism, uh, which um, which takes um, to be a, a, a metaphysical uh, a distinction or, uh, between uh, um, to treat sort of the self as something like uh, the way a presentist treats at the present uh, time as having a distinctive metaphysical status. And my my colleague Casper uh, Hare uh, defends a rather far out version of first person presentism as well. Now, Tom Nagel develops the notion that he calls the objective self, but uh, he's quite clear that he does not intend this to be a feature of an impersonal metaphysical conception of the world, and in fact argues that it wouldn't work if one tried. It wouldn't solve the problem or help explaining uh, the distinctive character of self-locating knowledge. Um, So uh, despite what I think is somewhat misleading terminology that he uses, it's not... I don't sort of rant, categorize him in, in this, uh, as one succumbing to this temptation. Uh, but anyway, if, if one can avoid this uh, the sort of uh, objectification of the self, one might try to see how the metaphysical inference is blocked in this case and whether this might offer insight into how it might be blocked in the case of the argument about knowledge of phenomenal experience. And I, as, I, as I've said, I, I think the analogy will be a helpful one that will at least help to sharpen the issues about phenomenal information. But it remains controversial exactly how self-locating knowledge and information should be understood, and we'll need to get clearer about that before exploring the parallels. And I think, in fact, the parallels help um, uh, on both, both directions to uh, understand uh, the distinctive kind of knowledge. So I'm going to conclude today by just looking briefly. Next week we'll talk more about uh, self-location, but uh, at, at the way John Perry uses the analogy and to suggest that he doesn't succeed in, um, in uh, dissolving um, the problem. Now, just as in the case for, uh, just as the case for irreducible phenomenal knowledge uh, is based on a thought experiment or various thought experiments, but the story of Mary as well as stories about zombies and Uh, things like that. Uh, So the case for irreducible self-locating knowledge is based on examples. Some fanciful, some more mundane. There are stories told by Hector Neri, originally by Hector Neri Castaneda a long time ago, more recently by uh, John Perry, David Kaplan, David Lewis, among many others, to illustrate the fact that our knowledge of ourselves and our place in the world, knowledge about what's happening now or here, or to me, cannot be reduced to impersonal objective knowledge about what the world, as it is in itself, is like. So John Perry talks about the self-described shabby pedagogue who sees himself in the mirror but doesn't realize that it is he himself that he is seeing. There's the case of the person who knows at noon that the meeting starts at noon but doesn't get up to go to it since she does not know that the meeting starts now. There are various stories about amnesiacs who know all about themselves under a certain description, but without realizing that it is themselves that they know about. And then 
the somehow one likes with philosophical examples to reach for a stretch as far away from plausibility as one can. There's David Lewis' story of two omniscient gods, each of whom allegedly knows exactly what possible world he is in. That is, they are omniscient about what the world in itself is like, but neither knows which of the two gods he himself is. In fact, omniscience gets in the way sometimes of knowing certain things because we all have a sort of limited perspective which helps us to locate ourselves in the world, but the omniscient gods don't have that, so it's harder for them to tell. Anyway, how should we understand this special kind of information that these stories illustrate? So in his discussion of the knowledge argument, John Perry underscores the parallel, starts sort of by the parallel between self-locating knowledge and belief and phenomenal knowledge and belief by telling a couple of stories about people who lack information about what time it is or where they are as a result of being locked in rooms. The information they lack is what he calls reflexive content, which is information about the relation between a representation and its ordinary subject matter. He uses this contrastive term, subject matter content. Perry illustrates the distinction between subject matter and reflexive content with the following example. So Perry is at a part aptly for self-knowledge, self-location. He uses himself as an example. Perry is at a party. Also, all the examples he uses in this book are characters whose names rhyme with Mary, so I guess he had to put himself in there as well. So Perry is at a party talking to Fred Dretzky, whose work he knows well, but who he has never met before. In the course of the conversation, Perry recommends that his interlocutor, who he does not realize is Dretzky, he recommends that he read a book that he admires, Knowledge and the Flow of Information. Although Perry already knew that Dretzky wrote this book, he learned something new when Dretzky says to him, I wrote Knowledge and the Flow of Information. What Perry already knew was, in his terms, the subject matter content of what he was told. The singular proposition about Dretzky that he wrote that book. The new information that he acquired, information that was conveyed by the statement, but not its subject matter content, is information about the relation between the representation, between the statement, and its subject matter content. And this is what Perry calls the reflexive content of the statement. Now, this distinction, according to Perry's diagnosis, is the key to dissolving Jackson's puzzle. The knowledge argument relies on what he calls the subject matter assumption, which is the last thing spelled out on the, on the handout. Um, and this is an assumption that involves, uh, on Perry's view, a conflation of the two kinds of content. Once we reject the subject matter assumption, we will have no more trouble with Mary. Just as in the Dretzky example, Perry already knew the subject matter content of what he was told, so in the case of Mary, 
she already knew, when still in her room, the subject matter content of the statement with which she might express uh, the new belief that she acquires. Seeing red is like this, where the this refers to a type of experience. What she did not already know was a different piece of information, and the different piece of information is the reflexive content that connects that statement to its subject matter content. So the subject matter content, again, is spelled out. I'll read it. The, the rational content of a belief is that part of the full truth conditions of the belief that account for the role the belief has in theoretical and practical inferences. The rational content of a belief is the conditions its truth puts on the subject matter of the belief. The objects, the notion, and the concepts in the belief are of. That's not perfectly transparent what that, um, what that says, but it, basically the sort of the rough idea is is the conflation of, of the two kinds of content that is the subject matter assumption to take something that's not um, that's some, some, a part of the rational content of a belief in his terms that's not the subject matter content. Take it to be the subject matter content. But the thing I want to focus on in this quotation is the expression a belief, the rational content of a belief. Um, what is meant here by a belief? That is, what kind of object are we talking about when we talk about someone's belief? It seems to me there are several things that one might mean. First, one might be referring to the content believed. That is, Burt's belief about who is president of the United States, if he believes that George W. Bush is the president, is the proposition that George W. Bush is the president. If Alice also believes this, then her belief about the matter is the same as his, in the literal sense that the two beliefs are identical. Alternatively, one might mean, by Burt's belief that George W. Bush is the president, the fact that Burt believes this, or perhaps the state of having this belief, a state that both Burt and Alice are in. In these senses, all these senses, uh, the belief is individuated by its content and not by some vehicle that expresses the content. So in either of these senses, or any of these senses, it would make no sense to talk about two different kinds of content of a belief in the way Perry does, even if the distinction is one that one could make when one was talking about utterances or statements. That is, one makes sense of the idea that an utterance or a statement or a representation <coughs> has two or is associated with two different contents or has a content uh, in has content in two different ways, and so therefore is related in different ways to different contents. But uh, it's not clear that it makes sense to talk about beliefs uh, in, in this way. As I understand the distinction that Perry is making, reflexive content is a relative, or at least should be understood as a relative notion. As Perry points out, the reflexive content of one utterance might be the subject matter content content of a different utterance. So, for example, the reflexive, reflexive content of Dretzky's utterance, I wrote, knowledge and the flow of information, um, is the subject matter content expressed by a different utterance, one that Perry himself might have produced on the occasion. 
That is, quote, the person talking to me wrote knowledge and the flow of information. So you wrote knowledge and the flow of information said by Perry to Dretsky, uh, incredulously, um, is, uh, is something which has as subject matter content the uh, singular proposition. But the different statement, the person talking to me wrote knowledge and the flow of information, makes explicit this thing that's the reflexive content of the other statement. So to apply this, to, if we were to apply this distinction to states of knowledge or belief, as well as to utterances, we would have to assume a kind of linguistic model of such mental states, and to apply the distinction either to the mental sentences that are presumed to reside in the belief box, or perhaps to the sentences that the knower or believer would most naturally use to express his belief or knowledge. But even if one were to take this notorious belief box myth seriously, who knows in what particular form Mary might store the information she receives, and how can that be relevant? The puzzle about Mary is a puzzle about the nature of the information itself and not the way it is represented or expressed. Now, Perry sketches a metaphorical model of an internal mechanism that might underlie the cognitive events that take place in the Dretzky example, as well as in the case of Mary, a model that is a little different from the belief box picture, but similar in spirit. In the, uh, in the Dretzky case, to apply his little model to this, there's a perceptual buffer containing a notion of a person currently being perceived. And a file of information, uh, that's one thing. And that second thing, there's a file of information associated with a standing notion of Fred Dretzky. What happens when Perry learns who he is talking to is that a plug from the former is plugged into a socket from the latter, allowing information to flow between them. The model for the cognitive event that takes place when Mary leaves her room is supposed to be similar. She has some kind of quasi-perceptual buffer in which, when she's looking at something red, gives her access, in some sense, to an internal state about, uh, about which she has a standing notion associated with a rich file of information that she acquired when still in her room. When she connects them, she knows what it's like to see red. Now, just a parenthetical remark. I'm uh, suspicious of these models of representational mechanisms with their boxes and buffers and files, since what they do is to mix intentional and non-intentional descriptions in a way that may give an illusion of explanation of intentionality where there is none. That is, there are these file folders. What's in them? Not pieces of paper, but information. One doesn't open a, a, a folder and find a proposition between the covers. One needs an explanation of what it is that gives whatever one finds in there uh, the intentional content that it has. And that's the question that tends to get slurred over uh, when one talks about, in sort of mechanistic terms, about uh, buffers and files and uh, stuff, and also talks about notions and information. Uh, but anyway, even if something like this story, this, this story about the mechanism of, of representation and information processing, is what happens, the information that Perry and Mary receive is not information about the cognitive mechanism. They can only speculate about that. 
In the Dretzky case, what Perry learned was a fact about the world, namely that the person he is talking to is Fred Dretzky. That is an unproblematic piece of contingent information that can be characterized independently of any mechanism by which it is represented. When Perry received this information, information, he updated his beliefs by excluding certain possibilities that were compatible with his prior beliefs, those in which the person he was talking to was someone other than Dretzky. Can we give a similar straightforward account of the information that Mary acquires? If we could, that would dissolve the problem. But there are several problems with the analogy. First problem, it's useful to see the first problem. It's useful to divide Mary's cognitive achievement when she learns what it's like to see red into two stages. First, she has the experience of seeing red. And then she learns that it is red that she is seeing. Uh, And it's in the second stage that she connects her experience with all of the information about the color and all of the internal uh, knowledge about the internal physiological states involved in experiencing uh, it. Now, Perry himself makes this division of the uh, cognitive (coughs) event uh, into two stages implicitly by uh, using the device of what he calls uh, the Nita Rumelin room after a variation on the story of Mary told by uh, philosopher uh, Martin uh, Nita Rumelin in several uh, papers. So um, her room is a room wallpapered with random shapes which have various colors, but with no recognizable colored objects. So in the Nita Rumelin variation, Mary or her... um, uh, Nita Rumelin's alternative character named Mary Ann, learns what it's like to see red and the other colors by moving to this room. But she remains ignorant of which color she is seeing. And I'm going to talk about later uh, about uh, an example of this kind. It's at stage one that the problematic cognitive achievement, the learning what it's like, takes place. But it's at stage two that plugs are connected to sockets, its own allowing information to flow between the two parts of the process. It's only at this point that Mary receives information, the second stage, when Mary receives the information that this color is red, the information that is analogous to the information that Perry received, that this person is Tretzky. So even if the analogy could help to explain what is learned at stage two, it's not clear this would be relevant to the original puzzle. But even at stage two, there seems to be a disanalogy. In the Dretzky case, the fact that was learned was a straightforward contingent fact. The possibilities excluded were possibilities in which Perry was talking to some person other than Dretzky. When Mary learns at stage two that this experience was an experience of red, is what she learns a contingent fact. It was compatible with Mary's prior knowledge with Perry's prior knowledge, that he was talking to someone other than Dretzky. But is it compatible with Mary's prior knowledge, her knowledge at stage one, after having seen red things, but before learning that they are red, that she is having an experience of a different kind? There is at least a prima facie reason to think that the analogy breaks down at this point. Perry's prior perceptual notion or concept, we can use that term, of Dretzky, the notion or concept that is the intentional content 
of what is in the perceptual buffer is clearly a non-rigid notion, a notion that may apply to different individuals in different possible worlds. That's what makes the story of what's going on in the Dretzky example relatively unproblematic. Uh, That's just to say that in certain non-actual possible worlds, some of which are compatible with Perry's prior beliefs before learning who he was talking to, the person he is seeing and talking to is someone else. But is it plausible to assume that the phenomenal notion or concept that Mary acquired at stage one is non-rigid in the same way, that the same notion might apply to different experiences in different possible worlds, different types of experience in different possible worlds? So I'm going to argue later that this is indeed compatible with Mary's stage one knowledge, but I will also be arguing that biting this bullet requires that we question some entrenched dogmas about the relation between phenomenal experience and knowledge. At this point, I just want to note this prima facie problem for the analogy. So I don't agree with Perry that we can dissolve the puzzle raised by the knowledge argument simply by making the distinction between subject matter and reflexive content and by bringing to the surface and rejecting the assumption that all content is subject matter content. But I do agree that the recognition of information that essentially involves the representer and his or her place in the world is required to clarify the problem. Both phenomenal knowledge and self-locating knowledge are in some sense essentially subjective, and both raise questions about the relation between an objective conception of the world and a subject's perspective on it. So I'm going to come back to the story of Mary in two weeks, but first, next week, I want to try to get clearer about exactly how we should understand self-locating attitudes. And this is a problem that's of interest in itself, and that will be relevant to some of the issues about knowledge of, of content, of thought, that I want to talk about later, as well as uh, be relevant to these issues, as well as to Jackson's vexing puzzle. So next week, I'll sketch away, I think, self-locating knowledge and belief should be represented and look at another puzzle that has preoccupied some philosophers in recent years, the case of Sleeping Beauty. Thank you.